0: And man, it is hard to believe we've only got a few weeks left uh, of the semester and the book. So uh, I'm a little bit sad about that, both those things. Um, But we're not there yet. We're not at the end yet. So uh, this has just been such an incredible study from my heart. Mary was asking me if Philippians has been my favorite book, and usually it's, like, not a fair question, because whatever book I'm teaching is my favorite um, at that moment. That's how it works. Um. But man, the Lord's just been so sweet to my to me personally uh, through the study of this letter, and tonight is no different. So we'll be in Ephesians. Uh, Ephesians. We'll be in Philippians four. Uh, wow, went way back there. Um, in Philippians four. So you can go ahead and turn there if you are not there already. Well, a few years back, a worldwide Gallup report showed that anxiety was, and still is, on the rise. Does that surprise anybody? No. They interviewed over 150,000 people across 140 different countries. And according to this study, people across all the planet are experiencing increased levels of stress. Record levels, in fact... And it's so bad that some are calling it an anxiety epidemic. And if you just take a look around the internet, uh, the popular literature proves that uh, this is an anxiety epidemic. I did just a quick search on the website WikiHow, that scholarly uh, resource. And there were at least 12 separate articles just only on, like, narrow search, only on finding peace and inner tranquility. All right? Twelve different articles, like, in this in this little file. Some of them had over a million views each. Uh, most of them landed between 200,000 uh, 200, and 400,000 views, which is still a lot. And what's sad about the survey is that you know, they, they were able to kind of take this poll, but they were pretty honest. They were like, we don't know why this is. We're not sure why. I mean, they, they had some theories, right? But they're like, basically, it's shot in the dark as to, as to why this is. And in fact, they kind of pointed out, it's, it's actually quite puzzling, especially for Americans, because of our economic prosperity and our technological advancement. The standards of living today are so much higher than they've ever been in the history of the world but we're more anxious and more depressed than ever. And so it's clear that we're scared, but they don't know the ultimate cause. And when you don't know the ultimate cause, it's really hard to uh, have a lasting remedy, right? Humans crave peace, but they do not know how to get it. But it doesn't stop us from trying. People all over the world try to cope in various ways. That's what the world says. They try to cope in various ways. And so do Christians, so do we at times. People might try to take refuge in things like video games or social media, streaming platforms, as some kind of escape from the pressures of life. They might medicate to get some temporary relief from the panic they feel on a daily basis. They might turn to alcohol or drugs or impulse Amazon purchases or food or self harm. They experiment in various religious systems or they might throw themselves into a noble cause of some kind. They might spend their life trying to insulate themselves from every form of so called toxicity. They might think the solution is finding a spouse. Or at least experience the pleasures of sex in one form or another. Or they might think that it will come with a gender transition. If I can just align my biology with what I feel on the inside, then this anxiety will end. Or maybe they'll find peace if they land their dream job. All of these things are an attempt to find peace. To find rest for their souls by seeking refuge in the wrong places. By worshiping at the altar of false gods. Idols that are posing as the true God. And they never deliver the true peace they promise. We all know that by experience, don't we? So that's just us clawing around like the non-experts, right? Trying to figure it out. But the experts, the MDs, the life coaches... And the therapists, they don't really help us much either. All the articles, all the podcasts, all the counseling lectures say similar things. You ready for this? I read several of them today. Make sure you breathe. Path to peace. Make sure you breathe. Very important if you want to stay alive. Exercise often. Get enough sunlight Do things that make you happy. Join a community. Empty your mind, or as they would say, practice mindfulness. Forgive yourself. Take medication if you want. Get away from toxic people. Learn what triggers you, and definitely change your circumstances. Those are the solutions from the so-called professionals. The world's roadmap, we might say, to the path, of peace. But their solutions are deceived solutions, or they're half-truths at best. They say, peace, peace, like the prophets say, when there is no peace. And if people are honest, it will admit that it feels like chasing the wind when they pursue these things. But there is tremendous... God has not left us in our deception, groping around in the dark. He has revealed Himself to us, as, the tr- and He's revealed not just Himself, but the true state of affairs for human beings. He's given us both the ultimate problem and the ultimate solution. And our ultimate problem is not that we're not getting enough sunlight, or that we're in a stress-inducing circumstance. It is the fact that we are in rebellion against our Creator. That we have cut ourselves off from the God of peace. In our arrogance as humans, we've replaced the only true God with false gods. In our deception, we seek peace from our idols. And when we don't get it, we feel panicked. Because you see, anxiety isn't ultimately caused, get this, it's not ultimately caused by something from outside of us. That's what the world wants us to think. You know, we I was doing just fine. I was not anxious at all and then bam, my friend didn't invite me to hang out with that group of friends. Now I'm a wreck. What if my friends don't really like me? What if I end up alone and we feel it coming, right? It definitely feels like your friend, it feels like your friend caused your anxiety. Doesn't it? Does it resonate? And if you think that, you might be tempted to think that they are the ultimate problem. That they're toxic. That you just need to get away. But do you know what actually is actually happening? You're choosing to respond in fear because something happened to you. Something you're trusting in is not coming through for you like you had hoped. Your house of cards that you've built is caving in, and now you are afraid. Your functional God is not as stable as you thought. Anxiety or fear, it's already within us. And the circumstance is just revealing what is already there. And so we're anxious and stressed by our choice. By choice. And it's because our false gods are not coming through. So our anxiety then, it reveals what we worship. It reveals our lack of trust in our Creator, the one true and living God. And that's sin. And that's the ultimate problem. We don't have peace because we're at war with a God of peace. And so the Bible shines light on the problem And as hard as that is to see, as hard as that is to admit about ourselves, that is our only hope. Because when we correctly diagnose the problem, it puts us on the right trajectory for the solution. And when we do that, we're not the the perpetual victim anymore, and hallelujah, because that is a bad place to be. That's a bad state to live in. There's no hope in that. We're not the perpetual victim anymore. We're not subject to circumstances outside of our control. When we realize that our fear is actually sinful and is rooted in idolatry, we can do something about it. The Lord reveals this to us, so we'll humble ourselves and return to Him. And that's where it gets almost too good to be true. because You see, the God of peace, He has already anticipated and met our greatest need in His great love for us, in His bottomless mercy to idol worshipers. He sent His Son to die for our rebellion against Him. God Himself made terms for peace. He offers full pardon free and for all who will trust Him, to all who will come back to Him. The God of peace has made peace, Ephesians 2 says, by the blood of the cross. And for those of us who have come to Christ, this means that all our distrust, all our idolatry, all our anxiousness was punished when Jesus died on the cross. Ephesians 2 says that Christ made peace between us and God. He made that peace. It says He reconciled us to God through the cross. And what that means for the Christian is this. No matter what you feel, you are already at peace with God. You are already at peace with Him because of what Jesus has done, whether you feel it or not. If you've owned your sin, if you've turned to the Lord if you've turned to Him in faith, if you have entered into His peace. Jesus Himself is your peace, Paul says in Ephesians 2.14. You are no longer at war with Him. You have been restored to your Creator, the God of peace, by your incorporation into Christ. And now, if that's not good enough, here's where it gets really good. Like everything else in the Christian life, God is now in the process of helping us, you ready for it, experience that peace. The peace we've been given freely in Christ, He is at work within us to help us progressively experience that very peace. Today, right now, in the midst of all our toxic circumstances. And it's a peace that Paul says here in chapter 4, passes all understanding. As Christians, we get the opportunity to experience God's peace in the here and now. And you see, even though it's ours objectively, even though we've been reconciled to God, our experience of that peace is dynamic means it's progressive it depends to some degree on us we'll talk about that but that raises the million-dollar question right like how like what what how do we experience this peace what is the path if it's not what you described earlier what is the path In our text tonight paul's going to tell us how he gives us the roadmap to experience god's peace and according to paul peace is not automatic even though we have it with god our experience of it is not automatic. Sometimes we just think that, you know, God's just going to zap us with peace. Like, that's how it works. But that's not, that's not how it works, according to the Apostle Paul, not in this text. We don't just ask for it and then, bam, there it is. We certainly pray, as we're going to see, but he details out several active pursuits for us in the paragraph in front of us tonight. And we're going to see these, instru- <laughs> these instructions are very different um, from what the life coach said in the instructions, okay, in the, in the article. And I just, just, just thought experiment, because we swim in this stuff, okay? This is just, this is the air we breathe. And I just, I want to just pretend that a therapist was talking to Paul and evaluating Paul's circumstances. Just hang with me. Paul was a man that basked in God's peace. A piece that defied normal human logic. Passes all understanding. He's going to tell us. So just think about this. I'm sure that today's therapist would have described Paul's circumstance as not good for his mental health. Fair enough? Where is Paul? He's in prison. What was that prison like? Horrific. He's imprisoned unjustly at that. And he's in unthinkable condition. They would have probably classified his prison guard as a toxic person that Paul should try to get out of his life. Uh Uh-oh. He's chained to him. Well, beyond that, Paul's going to have a hard time seeing any sunlight. I mean, just think about that. You ever seen the Roman prison? That's not, there's not a lot of light in there. He probably doesn't want to spend time breathing in super deeply either because of the smell. Exercise was hard to come by, I would imagine. My point is that Paul wouldn't be able to just pursue that article's path of peace. And yet, here he sits in prison He is experiencing God's peace, a peace that steadies him and empowers him, a peace that guards his inner man. It defies human wisdom, or as he says here, surpasses knowledge. As we're going to see in a few weeks, he's learned the secret to contentment, which is another way of talking about his experience of God's peace. So let's just look at a high level here quickly before we jump into this, the details of this passage. It's important to know here that Paul's wrapping up this letter. Okay, He's kind of wrapping it up. He's, he's begun that in, in verse 4. And it's going to kind of come to a climax in verse 8, 8 and 9. So he's kind of wrapping it up here with these final instructions to the church. And he's revisiting a number of themes he's already touched on at various points. And he's bringing them all together here as a sort of climactic exhortation. For the whole Philippian church, because remember, you have to think back a couple of weeks back, but he kind of zeroed in on Yodi and Syntyche and was like, you guys need to get along. But now he's going to broaden out, generalize these instructions, and kind of rapid fire for the whole church as sort of this climax of exhortations. And it's the final charge, so to speak. It's the, it's the, these are the things he wants ringing in their ears as, they, as the letter comes to a close in terms of their responsibilities before the Lord. Now, there are six total instructions here in verses 4 through 9, so you can see on here we're only going to cover verse, through verse 7 tonight, and that's because these first, the first four of the six are linked, and those are the ones we'll look at tonight, and then there's two commands that kind of bring it all up and summarize everything at the end, and those are linked too. Now, after both sets of these commands, there's four commands and the two commands, Paul tells the church that they will experience God and His peace if they obey, Okay, if they follow the path. So so let's look at this. Let's look at the four commands first, beginning verse 4. Number one, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Number two, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Number three, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, number four, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Here's a summary, or here's the, here's the promise of peace. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. There's the first set. Second set. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, number five, think about these things. What you've learned and received and heard and seen in me. Number six, practice these things and, there it is, the God of peace will be with you. It's A group of four with a promise and a group of two with a promise. So we'll cover the four tonight. And what's his point? He wants the church, this church in Philippi, he wants us tonight to experience God's incredible peace that defies human logic, that Paul's basking in, in the Roman prison. He wants us to experience that too. And he illumines the path to get us there. So we're going to look at these four pursuits. We'll call them maybe four initial pursuits, because there'll be two more next week. But these four initial pursuits to experience God's peace. We'll just unpack these. You know, we've talked about some of this stuff at different points, so I'll, I'll be a little bit briefer in these different uh, different points here. But there's four pursuits, and they're pretty straightforward. Uh, I've summarized them in this way. You know, number one, the first pursuit is this. It involves rejoicing in Christ, even in your toughest circumstances. This first pursuit involves rejoicing in Christ, even in the most difficult circumstances you find yourself in. Paul writes in verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. So if we want to consistently experience God's peace, we find down in verse 7, so all this is kind of all these commands are culminating toward. If we want to exist, consistently experience God's peace, then we've got to learn to consistently rejoice. And that includes even in our most challenging circumstances. It's so important to Paul. Joy is so crucial for the Christian life that he repeats himself a second time, even in the same sentence. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again I will say, rejoice. Now, I know this sounds almost impossible when you're thinking about that. Rejoice in every circumstance. Like, that's pie-in-the-sky stuff. Uh, It's discouraging, because I, you know, don't do that. But I think this is one of the most hope-filled commands in Scripture, and we'll we'll see why that is in a moment. But let's just dig into the the details here and kind of pick this apart. First, what is he commanding us when he tells us to rejoice? What is the essence of it? Is he commanding us to have some feeling only? Well, if you remember back, probably, probably about two months ago, uh, Paul's already given us this command back in chapter 3, and we looked in depth at that command to rejoice. There, I'd recommend you go back. If you want a detailed look at this, you missed that, go back and check that out. And when we covered it then, we said that joy definitely has an emotional element to it. It's not like, I'm joyful, you know, like a robot. Like, it's, there's an emotional element to joy. But it goes beyond mere emotion. We defined it then as a deep attitude of good cheer, hope, and optimism. That's not my definition. That was a different guy. But I liked it. A deep attitude of good cheer, hope, and optimism. And so when Paul commands us to rejoice, he's commanding us to adopt a particular way of thinking that impacts our attitudes and eventually our emotions. It's a particular way of thinking that impacts our attitudes and eventually even our emotions. In other words, he's telling us that we must choose, choose volitionally to be of good cheer. We must choose to be hopeful. We must choose to be optimistic. But how? You know, what? How do we, How do we do that? Well, second, notice this next phrase. He says rejoice in the Lord. We're not rejoicing in our circumstances. But what are we rejoicing in? Christ, right? We're rejoicing in the Lord. That means the Lord is the ultimate object of our joy. We've turned from our worthless idolatries and false hopes. We've turned to Him. We've turned to Christ, our true God. He's forgiven us. He's made us alive. He's with us in every circumstance. He's ready to help and commune with us, as we're going to see. He's committed to leading us to the new creation, to seeing us through death, to raising our bodies, to promoting us to glorious work in the coming kingdom. And absolutely nothing can separate us from His love. Nothing can thwart His eternal and good plans for us. We are safe in His hands. Even if we die for the sake of Christ, we're safe in His hands now and eternally. And this means we always have a reason to rejoice. The well never runs dry. Because Christ never stops loving us. He never stops working in us even when we sputter and fail in our sin. He never disowns us. Our worst circumstances can't diminish His good plans for us in one iota. Our worst fears can't dislodge us from His faithful hands or drain our certain inheritance in any way. And so, Paul says, we must rejoice in Christ always. Meaning in every circumstance. The good circumstances, the boring circumstances, and even the bad circumstances. In the good ones, we rejoice in Christ for giving us a tiny little foretaste of what the new creation is going to be like. He's not miserly the warm spring day, the embrace of a friend, a delicious cup of single origin coffee? You can laugh. That's a gift, right? That's from the Lord. When that girl says she's going to marry you, praise the Lord. Jojo. These are good gifts from Christ. And we choose to rejoice in Him for those things. But even the bad, and the terrible circumstances. Even the ones we would not choose for ourselves. Paul says we must learn to rejoice in those. We can and should lament. We can and must weep for sorrow in these circumstances. Paul does that. But we also have got to see them as from the Lord's hand too, just like Job did. We've got to know that God tests the righteous, that He refines our faith, that He conforms us to Christ's image through suffering. We can't be immature and start doubting the Lord. We've got to be able to trace His hand to see the fruit He is producing when His hand is heavy upon us And choose to rejoice in that. James 1. But the point here, what I want to connect for you, is that if we want to experience God's peace, then we've got to start choosing to rejoice instead of griping and complaining. In other words... We can pray for peace all we want, but if we're discontent, we ain't gonna get it. Choosing to rejoice is like turning the spigot, then the water of peace comes gushing out. It's the way the Lord's designed it. And it makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, if we're not rejoicing, that means we're not trusting the Lord. We're pushing against His purposes when He does something we don't like. And so He's not going to give us that inner tranquility of soul that He's in perfect union with us now, like in terms of like our, our communion with Him, when we're saying, I don't trust you," We can sing all the worship songs we want, but if we're not rejoicing in our trials, we don't trust Him. And so, do you know the arenas and situations of your life when joy is hard to come by? That's the domain. That's what's hindering your experience of God's peace. As you learn to rejoice in that area, guess what's going to happen? You're going to start, you're going to be evidencing more of God's peace. You're going to experience it in a way that passes understanding. That defies human logic. But that's not all Paul says in this text. There's a second pursuit here that he says, and it it involves displaying gentleness in the face of provocation. It involves being gracious in those toxic relationships. It says in verse 5, let your reasonableness, is how the ESV translates that, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. So as we learn to rejoice before the Lord in every circumstance, that joy toward Him will come out in a gentle disposition and gentle speech toward others. In fact, Paul's emphasis here is that it'll be most manifested when it's directed not just toward the church, but toward, notice what he says, all men. In other words, all people, including even our enemies, or as I'm saying here, I think in the context, those who provoke us, because that's what this church was experiencing. And as we're going to see, this is another essential pursuit when it comes to experiencing God's surpassing peace. But let's dial in on a few few of these details. First, we need to wrap our minds around what the ESV translates as reasonableness, okay? So what what exactly is he telling us to display toward other people? What should be on the billboard? What should we be displaying? What is this word? Well, it's kind of difficult to capture in English, and if you just kind of take a quick glance around several translations, you're going to notice them trying to grapple with how best to render this word. Just to give you an idea. ESV, reasonableness. NASB, gentle spirit, or gentleness. New, new NIV, New King James. Considerate spirit, or considerate. Moderation, King James. Graciousness, Holy Christian Standard. Forbearance, your forbearing spirit, when when Lexicon said, so it's like, whoa, what are we what are we talking about here? Well, of all of those, I think you can kind of dial that in. I probably like either gentleness, just as a as a kind of blanket statement, or probably graciousness is best in this context. Because gentleness kind of has the idea of like a, a tenderness, which is really good, and I think in, in this word. But there's also this idea that within this context and this term itself, of a of a provocation that's happening and the person just being gracious and gentle. So I, I like both of those. And, and I mean, they're forbearing, they're being patient. All of that's kind of wrapped up into, into this term. And because what Paul's getting at is we don't respond in some kind of fleshly way to being provoked. That's what he's saying here. We don't respond in some kind of fleshly way when we're provoked. It's the opposite of violence. 1 Timothy 3.3. 3. Okay? It's the opposite of violence in the qualification of an elder. He's not to be violent, but gentle, it says. It's the opposite of being argumentative and contentious. Titus 3.2. It's the, it's the opposite of demanding others to give us what we think we deserve. is not harsh toward other people no matter what they deserve if you want a positive example it's how Christ responded on the cross to those who crucified him who were hurling insults at him and abusing him he didn't open his mouth but when he did it was either to warn them in love or tenderly intercede for their forgiveness he never sought vengeance he never lost control he never retaliated in anger. He never withdrew in fear. Instead, he remained gracious in his heart and gentle in his speech. And don't miss what Paul wants this way of relating others. This way of relating to others, I should say to don't miss that he wants us to transcend the walls of the church. Of course, he wants us to display gentleness to each other, but he wants it to go beyond that. He wants us to display it to everybody. It's comprehensive, just like his command to rejoice in every circumstance or to be gentle with every person. Nobody's excluded. I can't even exclude one of my own kids when they're being especially provocative, right? So easy to justify being harsh in my speech in a moment. And you can't exclude that lazy, you know, coworker that's that's not pulling their weight, it's rude, demanding. We've got to work at cultivating this gracious disposition when we're provoked or inconvenienced or even hurt by other people. But you might be asking, Well, how in the world do I cultivate that? Like, people are difficult. You work in the church, Clay. You don't you're not in the world, you know, you don't experience difficult people. Um, what about me? I'm I'm slogging it out over here. In this. Well, Paul's going to slip in a little motivation here, okay? And it's actually quite a large motivation, um, actually. But he reminds us, notice, that the Lord is at hand or the Lord is near. Thinking, hmm. A, what does that mean? And uh, you know, B, how does that motivate me? Well, I think it's best to understand here that this is an allusion to the Old Testament particularly to the Psalms, and particularly to Psalm 145.18. Psalm 145.18, I'll just read that to you. It says, The Lord is near, same phrase in the Greek version of the Old Testament, same phrase, same construction. The Lord is near, the Lord is at hand, to all who call on Him. To all who call on Him in truth. The will of all who fear Him, He will do. And to their petition he will hearken, and he will save them. The Lord watches over all who love him, and all the sinners he will destroy. Again, I'm giving you kind of a wooden translation of that Greek version of the Old Testament there. So the contexts are are very similar between Psalm 145 and here. And we can see why Paul uses the same language. He's reminding us of the nearness of the Lord's presence. In other words, the Lord is not aloof somewhere when we are being provoked. Did you catch that? The Lord is not aloof when we're being provoked. He attends to me in love. He stands ready to help me. He is attentive to my requests. When we're suffering or when we're in a trial or somebody's treating us poorly, we are tempted to think the Lord is not near to us in love. So my heart does. If he is, why would he let this happen? Paul does not want the church to get trapped in that lie. Our Lord Jesus is very near to us in love. But his nearness also implies something else. It implies that that he's sovereignly involved in my situation. Right? He's near. He's involved. He's not disconnected somewhere. And he's involved in the situation. He's involved in this very provocation. He is ordaining it for his good purposes and his good hand is on the dial. Doesn't get any hotter than he lets it get. He won't turn the heat beyond what is necessary. In his mysterious providence. He ordained the absolute worst human suffering in the crucifixion of His own Son. And that was to accomplish the most glorious good to humans. And if He can beautifully and wisely ordain that, then we can be certain that His good hands are on those who annoy us and provoke us and even threaten us. He is near He is very present and involved, and we have to call this to mind if we are going to be gentle. If we're going to have self-control. If we're going to overcome evil with good. We've got to know he's near. If you doubt that, you won't be able to do this. And it's crucial that we, as hard as this is, it's crucial to be cultivating this gentle disposition because Paul knows if we don't, we won't experience God's peace. We will fall prey to doubting the Lord's promises. We'll fall prey to thinking He's abandoned us or that He doesn't care about us. And those lies fuel resentment. Resentment, both at the perpetrator and at God. And there's no peace in resentment. In being the perpetual victim. Think about it. When's the last time you heard somebody seething with bitterness and say, ah, perfectly content in my heart. They don't. Because they're not. There is no peace for the wicked, Paul says. Oh, not Paul. I think that's What's is that? Isaiah, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. But when we're humbling ourselves, when we are owning the fact that we have been retaliatory, right? That we've been harsh, that we've been bitter, we've been playing the victim card. And guys, we're all there. Okay? So none of us are exempt. When we own this, the Lord pours out his mercy on it. He gives us, he gives grace to the it says. He comes alongside us to help us cultivate patterns of graciousness in our interactions with others. It doesn't happen overnight. We're on our face a lot. And like rejoicing, responding in gentleness, learning how to do this when we're provoked, it opens us up to experiencing God's peace. Because we're actually trusting Him. We're actually trusting Him. We actually believe that he's near us. Now, when we're provoked, especially when it gets hostile, we might be tempted toward another response besides just kind of being angry or violent or like uh, resent, resentful. We make God the, the, the opposite direction and shrink back in sinful fear. You know what I'm talking about? It's like, man, I just took her on the chin. It's the gospel? It's like, I'm doing that again. You know, I'm just gonna, I'm going to back off. A little bit here. Um, but when we remember the Lord is near, this is going to fill us with courage too. And it will help us in our third pursuit of refusing to succumb to sinful fears. what he said. Straightforward here. Verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything. Again, another comprehensive statement. that seems impossible on the surface. Like we talked about at the beginning of the sermon, sinful fear is one of the most common hindrances to experiencing God's peace. Paul knows that if we let it run unconfronted in any circumstance or sphere of our lives, it will stop up our experience of God's peace. Catch that? If we let it go, we don't deal with it. Just let it run. We call it something else. Paul knows that it will stop up our experience of peace And so he says we have to refuse to let it gain ground in our life. Do not be anxious for anything. Now, with a statement like that, it's important to highlight what Paul's not saying. He's not saying we should never be nervous, we should never feel butterflies, or we shouldn't even have concern over troubling circumstances. He's not saying we shouldn't exercise caution in the daily activities of our lives. Even Paul says he was concerned, literally same word, he was anxious in a positive sense about the Philippians. He says that's why he sent Epaphroditus back to them in chapter 2, verse 28. I'm eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So, there's a normal concern that we have for each other and in our lives, generally. So how can we tell the difference between sinful fear and loving concern? Well, one of them flows from faith, and the other one does not. That's your litmus test. One of them flows from faith, and and the other doesn't. It's because I trust God, and it's because I believe His Word, that I'm concerned for you. Right? I want you to be careful. I'll even feel emotionally wrapped up in your well-being. That's the concern. But when it's sinful, it's not flowing from faith. Unbelief is at the headwaters. Sinful fear frets and does not trust God's good promises. Often, God's not even in the picture when we're afraid. And Paul's saying we've got to own that. We've got to own that as sin. We have to confess it and seek help if we need to. But we've got to work to battle it. He's not saying we're just going to overcome it, you know, with one prayer at night or whatever. Like, this, these are, fears are very gripping. I understand. I wake up with them. But we have to do battle with it. We can't just let it go unchecked because it's clogging up our experience of God's peace. But you might be wondering, how do I fight sinful fear when I feel so dominated by it? Well, that's its own sermon, okay? So maybe we can... Do that over the summer or something like that. I don't know. But for now, Paul provides an answer in our fourth pursuit. Notice he says, be anxious for nothing, but, in other words, he's giving us an alternative. Don't be anxious, but here's the way to fight. Here's the way to fight your fear. Learn to really pray in faith. Or I'm saying it here. It involves communing with your present Lord. Communing with your present Lord. Don't be anxious about anything, but here's the alternative. In everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So what's he saying? He's saying when you're scared commune with your Lord he's saying learn to cultivate a dependent expectant and grateful life of prayer of sweet communion with your very present Lord he's already there so let's just real quick unpack this last pursuit and then we'll wrap it up notice that we have yet again another comprehensive statement Kind of get the get the picture here, at the end of the letter. Paul's pulling pulling out the stops. We're literally to pray in everything, he says, in everything or or again in all circumstances. Paul's calling on us yet again to see our Lord lovingly attentive in our every situation of our life. He's attentive from the most mundane and trivial to the greatest and most severe. The great King, the High King of Heaven, is ready and waiting for our requests. We have His ear and His heart in all situations. That's tremendously encouraging. It's tempting to think the Lord is too concerned with the great things of the world to be occupied with the little mundane moments of my day. In fact, I'm embarrassed that these mundane moments are so difficult. Right? But He is occupied with them. In our fallen minds, He seems too great, too important to take the time from governing the cosmos to lovingly attending to my minor setbacks and inconveniences and complaints but he's not. He's not too busy. He knows your frame. He knows you better than you know yourself. And he is with you. The Lord is near to all who call on him. He will listen to their petitions. You know what that means? He really does hear your prayer. Like he does hear it. Do you pray like the king of heaven hears you? Do you pray like the sovereign of the universe is leaning in, undistracted, his eyes fixed on you, his heart teeming with compassion for you? Or to say it a little bit differently, are you praying in faith? I know in my life I have to consciously remember the God I'm praying to. I've got to recall these things as I go into this throne room not only does he tell us he cares, but he also promises that he will come to our aid. The king of the universe will come to help us when we ask him. He comes with his infinite resources, with the power that created the universe. The Psalms testify to the responsiveness of the Lord to His people. Out of my distress, I called on the Lord, and the Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. Psalm 118. So, Paul says very simply we should pray in every situation and in all seasons, and especially when we are afraid. Appeal to him about your fears. Tell him you are afraid. Tell him you need his help. Humble yourself. Ask him to come help you stand courageous and strong in the face of fear. Ask for His help in renewing your mind and stepping out in obedient faith when you are terrified. Affirm His own promises back to Him about His character. Lord, I know You're good and that You do good. That is what You have said. You promised to me that You care and that You are sovereignly in control of the situation. Help me to trust You Help me to fight my fears and act in obedience in this situation. That's fighting fear in prayer. But I want you to notice something else about what he says here. Paul draws out how we should make our prayers and supplications. Did you catch what he said there? Little word. Throw away, throw away a phrase, easy to miss. He tells us to do it with what? Thanksgiving. Now that's interesting. Because the context is you're terrified. I passed over this little phrase for years. But when Pastor Brian worked through Philippians, he pointed this out, and I was like, like, "How how did I not see this? So helpful. Paul's telling us here that when we are afraid, when we take our fears to him and entrust ourselves to him, that we do it with gratitude. <laughs> That's like jarring. It's tremendous. Why? Because it forces us back to his character. I'm typically not grateful when I'm racked with fear. Do you guys agree? But when I pause... And I'm forced to bring my heart into a grateful posture. Not just mouthing words, but actually reminding myself of who the Lord is and what He's done for me, how He's working even in the fearful circumstance. It puts the trial in perspective. We can so easily fall into this trap of frantic praying. Faithless praying on this front. Oh, just pray, pray, pray that the Lord does this or the Lord does that. Please pray, pray, pray. Like I don't know what we're going to do if the Lord doesn't do this. It's just like, He's God, and He loves you, and He's with you. He's got purposes in this. So sure, pray to ask Him to take it away, but trust Him. Trust Him We, we pray, wringing our hands in fear. But this little phrase reigns us in. I'm to make my requests with gratitude. Thank you that you are sovereign. Thank you that you have been good to me and you are always good. Thank you that the resurrection is coming and that the circumstances that tempt me to be afraid will be over. Thank you for the opportunity to cultivate real courage, but I'm praying you take it away. I'm praying you help me, but I trust you and I'm thankful that you're with me. That is a game changer fighting fear. Game changer. And he says when we're obeying these commands, all four of these here, when we're obeying, Paul hits the climax in these verses. It's a great motivation to get after it in these areas. He says, verse 7, when you're doing this stuff, the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Picture Paul telling you that. Smile on his face. Paul's great promise is that as we pursue these targets, as we work at rejoicing consistently, as we cultivate graciousness toward difficult people, as we really do battle with our fears, especially as we learn to commune with our Lord, the floodgates of God's peace will open to us. We'll experience in real time In this present age, the peace He has already accomplished for us, that objective peace that is ours in Christ, we will experience it today. And not just experience God's peace, as true as that is. The text actually says something a little different, doesn't it? He says that there's a bit more here. What does he describe God's peace as doing? Guarding. God guards us. His peace protects our inner person, our hearts and our minds. As we cultivate joy, as we cultivate gentleness and fearlessness and dependence, we are tasting the goodness of the Lord. We're experiencing His peace, yes. And this peace then guards the most important part of us. Our hearts and our minds. God keeps us from further deceptions and idolatry by his perfect peace. It stands as a guard over our hearts and our minds. What a promise. And that is Paul's roadmap for peace. A little bit different than what you're going to hear in the world and in many Christian circles. But this is the path for this peace that defies human logic, all understanding, that's inexplicable apart from the very power of God. And that's what he loves to put on display right here in the midst of this crooked and twisted generation. So praise God for his mercy in bringing us clarity in his truth. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we look at these commands, and the last thing you want us to do is to walk away from this discouraged. You want our hearts teeming with hope because there's always, always reasons to be happy in Christ. There's a way to be different in this world and gentle instead of retaliatory. To escape perpetual victimhood and blame shifting and and the rat race of all of that and and to live in freedom and joy to experience your peace. Lord, we confess our sins. We, We know that we fall far short of these ideals, but you don't ask us to be perfect. You ask us to trust you. You've already made us perfect in Christ. You've already granted us your peace. And so now, Lord, we do, we pray that you would help us to be faithful, more faithful tomorrow, In some of these areas help us to dial in on one or two of these that stood out to us tonight, and to look to put these things into practice so we can experience more of your peace, and be used by you, ultimately, to bring others to the God of peace. And we pray in Christ's name, amen.